What if I told you everything that you knew about tires and tire pressure was wrong? Whoa. Those numbers on the side of the sidewall, those actually have nothing to do with performance or going fast on a bike. And the things that we do to a tire to make it feel faster actually make us slower. You probably wouldn't believe me, so that is why I enlisted the help of an expert. So I'm Josh Portner, and uh, I'm the owner and president of Silka. Uh, I'm also an engineer, a background in aerospace, automotive, bike racing, all that good stuff. Josh is the guy that helps riders like Peter Sagan and Fabian Consolera dial in their tire pressure for huge events like Paris-Roubaix. When the wind's out of the north, you want to be a little bit on the higher side of the tire pressure so that you can be in a better spot when the break happens, knowing it's gonna to come to probably in that paved section. So in this video, we're gonna go into all the myths and misconceptions about tires and tire pressure. We're gonna talk about things you wouldn't even consider, like negative spaces between different types of asphalt. The wealthier an area you're in, the denser the new pavement will be. As you spend more money, you're typically using finer stone particulates. And Josh is also gonna give us tips on how you and I, just everyday riders, can dial in the perfect tire pressure. And before we get started, if you enjoy videos like this, consider supporting the channel via PayPal and Patreon. It really helps us create interesting bike content that no one else is doing. So with all that said, let's learn about tires. You can see where you know a new rider um, might make the wrong assumption of what a good tire pressure is. Uh, partially because like the tire doesn't help you out. Like there's a recommended right. tire pressure. Right. 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 Do you know where the recommended tire pressure comes from? Yes. So like very in a very strict, uh, strictly speaking, the tire pressure on the sidewall of the tire uh, is two times the pressure or is one half the pressure it would take to blow that tire off of a rim. Mm -hmm. uh, in a lab test run by uh, a group called ISO, used to be called the ETRTO. And so, you know, if your tire says, uh, you know, 140 on the sidewall, that means that on this steel test rim uh, in a laboratory, it could do, you know, 280. Right. <laughs> and so I think, you know, certainly when I was growing up, uh, you know, we were all taught, oh, you know, the higher, the higher that number on the sidewall, the better the tire, right? Because <laughs> that's what you wanted, uh, you know, and, and if you really had a coach, uh, who knew something, you know, he might tell you, Hey, you can actually go above that number, <laughs> right? <laughs> Cause that number is only a fraction of the, of the actual number. Um, so it has nothing to do with like <laughs> ideal tire pressure at all. It's just kind of like a, no, a standard no. testing for it blowing off the rim and everything. It's, it is absolutely 100% a legal requirement, um, by a testing and standards body. It almost couldn't have less to do with anything. Right. Well, let's get to know. <laughs> that it does, right? Yeah. I've been influenced a lot by uh, some of the, the stuff that Jan Heine has been talking about, um, saying that usually we associate you know, higher tire pressure with speed just because mm -hmm. of the, it transmits uh, mm -hmm. high-frequency vibration. And it sounds like you've, you've, discovered, you've found that, too, in your, in your testing. Those high-frequency vibrations feel fast because our brains are not very good at perceiving speed. Uh, you know, so it's sort of a classic... Um, proxy problem, right? That high frequency vibration is a proxy in your brain uh, for speed, just like wind noise mm -hmm. is a proxy for speed. Um, but the reality is, you know, humans are, we're not good at perceiving speed outright. Uh, you know, I, I have a talk I do. And, uh, you know, I always like to say that, you know, this is why people still get hit by trains, right? <laughs> and, and, and truly, because our, our eyes are, we're not set quite wide enough apart 
to accurately perceive velocity. You know, we can be okay with training at distance, but we're terrible at velocity. And so, you know, people see the train coming and they think, oh, it, it's not going that fast. And, you know, you've just completely misjudged. All of us, myself included, up until probably 10 years ago, were thinking, oh, you know, the high frequency vibration is fast. It's better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, I can feel it. It must be real. So ideal tire pressure lower than you would think. Generally, yes. You know, uh, we like to joke we've got uh, we've got this this van, this coffee van that we take a Mercedes Sprinter. You know, when we built the van, we we labeled it the inflation station. And the joke of the inflation station is that we take it to events and we spend probably 90 percent of our time deflating people's <laughs> tires, uh, you know, because they come up and they say, oh, I, give me 140. <laughs> it's like, you know, ma'am, you weigh 100 pounds. You don't, you know, 140 is probably double what you actually need. Um, and, and so, you know, it's been a great learning experience for us to, uh, you know, I think understand what people think is fast. And then it, it, really, honestly, that even the professional athletes we work with, uh, the pro teams that we work with, they're in the same boat, right? They're, they feel the same things that we feel. And, uh, you know, I think I, we've learned a lot from trying to convince them to come down to reasonable pressures that we use to help, you know, the rest of us come to reasonable pressures. And I think the one, uh, I would say, phrase that we come to over and over again is to stop stop thinking about this high-frequency thing being speed and seek smoothness. It's If, if it feels fast, it's probably not fast. <laughs> and, and as you come down in your pressures, it's when it starts to feel smooth, that's when it's actually fast. Hmm. Um, and you know, that's a pretty consistent thing. You know, we've got about a, there's probably a $40,000 data rig that we can hook up to a bike and send you out and actually test this with high accuracy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say, you know, 98, 99% of the time it's when the rider starts to say like, Oh yeah, that it doesn't feel fast anymore <laughs> as we're coming down in pressure. That's usually right about where it's fast. So let's what like what's kind of like a ballpark number. So let's say someone comes in, they, they ask for one forty. You know, let's say they weigh like one fifty, and they're running twenty five, twenty eight millimeter tires. You start to get into, and this is where it's hard to build an algorithm out uh, for these things. You know, if yeah, say you're one fifty, you're on a you know eighteen pound bike, you're on twenty fives. You probably come to me and you're running one twenty, and one twenty is probably a pretty good pressure for you on like a concrete velodrome. Mm-hmm. But you know, in the real world, we're not on concrete velodrome surface, and so as soon as you get onto asphalt, those pressures start to fall. And I think one of the things that people forget or they maybe don't think about is even when a surface looks smooth and feels smooth. Uh, particularly on asphalt, it's got a lot of negative space mm-hmm. in it. And I think that's, you know, it may not have protrusions like bumps sticking up. The negative spaces in the surface force the tire to squirm around to maintain the contact patch that it needs to support the weight. And that's where things start to get really interesting, right? Is the the pressures go up, the contact patch gets smaller. But now as it runs over those negatives, the tire has to work extra hard to kind of make that space up. And this is one of the things that, that makes it so hard to develop an algorithm for is that, you know, you might say, Oh, I have brand new pavement. And typically what we find is the, the wealthier an area you're in, the denser, the new pavement will be. 
right? Because there's, if, if, as you spend more money, you're typically using finer, um, like finer stone particulates Mm -hmm. in the asphalt. And then as you get into areas where they're saving money, the stones get larger, the negative spaces get larger and the pressure needs to come down. And so, you know, it's like every year, uh, before the major races, you know, I was a week in Europe before the tour de France this year. And we look at the critical stages and that's one of the things that we actually spend a lot of time looking at, right? Is okay. It may look smooth to the human eye, but how much negative space is in that pavement? Uh, because that can, you know, that can be a, a 15, 20 PSI difference. Right. Um, and, and yet, you know, it, 10 feet away, you and I looking at it might go, yeah, that's, that's about the same, right? But it's not. Do you have a sense of like, how would this apply to like a really wide tire, like a 650B by 48? The hard thing is establishing sort of your baseline for you um, and, and for the surface that you're on, right? So, you know, typically, um, you know, the laws of casing tension hold. Uh, and that is that, you know, as the, the tire casing gets larger, right, the the casing will have higher tension at the same pressure. But when you start to look at running over protrusions, like as bumps get smaller, the larger tires, they recruit, they recruit the casing around the bump more efficiently, right? If you think of a, you know, as the tire gets wider, it, it's tangent angle to the ground becomes flatter. And as also as the tire gets wider, its diameter grows. And so you get this sort of double benefit of having this decreased tangent angle to the bump. And so, you know, I might say, you know, uh, you know, 36 PSI is on a, you know, a 50 C tire or a 50 millimeter tire is the equivalent of, you know, a hundred PSI on a 25 millimeter tire, just picking a number. Um, but that's on a, a truly flat surface. But then when you look at the smaller, the bumps get, the more efficient, the larger tire gets, you know, the softer it gets. And, mm-hmm. uh, because it just takes less energy to deform over these tiny things. And so, you know, I think that's one of the things, you know, you, I love the, the word supple, right. That you, you love to use. And, uh, and I think that in a way, you know, supple to me is, is undamped spring rate, right. Supple is, is an undamped ability of something to deform and spring back over these small bumps, um, and the low damping is key, right? Cause I think, a, you know, if you take a, a, a crappy thick tire at the same size, at the same pressure, it will not be as supple. It might compress a similar amount, but it doesn't rebound as smoothly. If someone wants to find their, you know, ideal pressure, lots of variables involved, like what are, let's say three or four steps that can be applied by anyone anywhere to kind of find, um, some kind of good, good tire pressure. The big one, I would say get a notebook, right? Start with a notebook and a pencil, uh, which sounds like, oh, really? That sounds like a pain. Um, but you know, a, a notebook and a pencil or, you know, a notes app on your phone and a camera are just hugely invaluable. And I mean, this is, you know, uh, we go to work with Peter Sagan or whoever this, this is literally how we do it with them. Right. Um, and sort of pick your baseline pressure, pick what you think is there. Um, and typically it's going to be, I would say a little bit higher than probably what you really need. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we recommend coming down in couple PSI increments or couple percent increments, depending on, you know, obviously if you're, uh, you know, if you're starting at a hundred to five PSI is a good number to drop. If you're starting at 30, (laughs) five PSI is a lot, right. (laughs) To to drop, (laughs) start to bring it down. And, you know, if you're right, say ride a loop, 
so you can feel some consistency and, you know, feel for the smoothness to come on. And, you know, I would say, we generally say, keep going until you start to feel the cornering get a little bit vague. Mm-hmm. And that's typically like a PSI or two too far, mm-hmm. right? You, you want the bike to, to corner predictably. Um, the other one on, on, you know, truly smooth road, uh, that point is probably a little below the efficiency, but you can also feel for bobbing, like pedal induced bobbing on the tire. That's typically a little bit below, uh, you know, where kind of like the peak efficiency point would be. And then like, once you start to bob or feel that vagueness, come back up a couple percent and you're honestly going to be pretty close to your sweet spot. And that, you know, we could spend tens of thousands of dollars on equipment and, uh, you know, power meters and wind measuring devices, right. and little pitot tubes <laughs> and all this stuff that we have, right? We can throw a ton of stuff at it. And honestly, I can probably writing it down, writing a lap, making notes, doing it again, right? Making notes. I, we can probably get you within a couple percent right. uh, of your optimal just based on that sort of repetitive uh, note taking modeling. Would there be any X factors if, let's say, you were riding gravel or in like for or something like Perry Roubaix, where, you know, like a big or like a decisive chunk of it is very not smooth? <laughs> yeah. Like where, like where do you balance, or where, where would you balance um, you know, their tire pressure? Yeah. So you know, Roubaix is my favorite, right? It's you know, I spent three years of my life trying to make a carbon wheel win at Roubaix, and what we ultimately discovered was we just needed to convince them to ride wider tires. <laughs> So, you know, like this year, uh, Roubaix, we had wind out of the north. And if you know the course, the course is, you know, mostly north-south. But there's a lot, there's this kind of predominantly pavement section that goes west and then east. And so typically when the wind's out of the north, one of the big things that happens is attacks go in that east-west section as they try to break the race into echelons. Um, And so it actually, when the wind's out of the north, it's sort of, in a way, you want to be a little bit on the higher side of the tire pressure mm-hmm. so that you can be in a better spot when the brake happens, knowing it's going to come t- probably in that paved section. Um, if the wind's out of the west or the east, it becomes a little bit of a different story. So, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll tune, we'll probably start three days ahead of time and tweak the guys in based on, you know, what tires the sponsors given them that year. Um, you know, this year, one of the, the sort of dirty secrets that we had was with, uh, uh, with the bikes going to disc brakes, a lot of uh, the, the teams or a couple of the teams we worked with were riding, you know, and I have to do the air quotes, 30s. Uh, if you put calipers on them, would really measure like 32, mm-hmm. right? Well, that's a, that's a huge difference right. uh, in what we can optimize for with the tire pressure. Um, and so, you know, that's one where I'd say, you know, you might have a rider at, at 4.8 bar if we're optimizing for the cobbles and maybe it's 5.0 if we're optimizing for the pavement somewhere in that range um on a lighter rider it's probably a little lower the heavier riders you might be slightly above it at that size now similar to that you know i take a race like dirty kanza Mm -hmm. and you know it's typically more you know what what's your goal here survive right (laughs) and finish and so you know if we're talking with uh taylor finney or ted king the optimization point is going to be a little bit different than, you know, if I were building for myself, right. Or, or for you or somebody who's you right. know, trying to not die. Right. Um, and so there, you know, the, the thing that you're really after is as I look at it, 
I want the softest pressure I can run that's not going to pinch flat me, mm-hmm. right? Especially at a place like Konza where you've got that sort of sharp flint. And you think of, you know, one of the things that that really kills tires at a place like Konza is that the higher the tension in the casing, the easier it is to cut the casing, right? So you think of, you know, I always describe it as, you know, think of if I had like a mop head right here with all the dangly things. And, you know, you get a super sharp knife and you try to cut the threads of the, the mop. And you, if they're just dangling, you can't do it. Right. No matter how sharp your knife is, you can't do it. So if you wanted to cut them, what would you do? You'd pull the... Right? You'd pull tension in it. Right. And the more tension you have in the, you know, those strands, the easier they are to cut. And, you know, that's sort of the perfect analogy for what happens in a place like Konza where you've got that sharp flint that, you know, the sidewall of your tire is is typically like three plies, maybe four, some of the thick ones, maybe five, but of this sort of bias plied, you know, crossed um, cotton or nylon. And as the air pressure goes up, you're just pulling ever more tension in there, right? And so the goal, you know, for myself at a, at a ride like Kanza is, okay, how do I balance not pinch flatting with not having enough casing tension in there that I can get that big sidewall gash? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I would say uh, from some of my experience, you know, like a, a 650B, uh, you know, 50 to 55 millimeter tire on a 160, 170 pound rider, you're probably optimally in the high 20s, mm-hmm. you know, 28, 27. So there's, it sounds like there's lots of benefits to a wider tire, especially in races like uh, Roubaix or just like for, for lots of people. Is there, what's the point of diminishing returns where a tire is too wide? Depends how fast you're going, really. Um, you know, in pro racing, it's, we have this thing that we work to called the rule of 105. And that's that your, your rim needs to be at least 105% the width of the tire, right? Or flip it on its head. The tire should be 95% of the rim width. Um, you know, and that's for aerodynamics, right? And so you think of the speeds that the pro tour guys are, are riding, that's a big deal, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you know, violating the rule of 105, you know, in the sprint at the end of Roubaix can cost you 25 watts, 30 watts. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, that that's probably in a 250-meter sprint. That's probably a meter, right? That's right. a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, f- for the stuff that we're talking about here, you know, gravel riding, gravel racing, uh, the speeds are a lot slower, and so the aerodynamic penalties are just much much less, right? Especially, you know, we've probably, we've got our big gravel bars and we've got our, you know, uh, handlebar bag and, right. and you know, we're, the clothing we're wearing. I mean, the arrow is just not the priority there. And so honestly, I would say wider just continues to be better on those surfaces. I mean, almost to the point of like, if you can fit it in your bike, it's what you should be riding, <laughs> um, on a rough surface, right? right. Cause it's, you know, if you're averaging, 14 miles an hour, um, the arrow penalties of that are are pretty negligible, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, between call it a, you know, a 50 and a 55 it's right. As an aerodynamicist, I I would say, yeah, they're, they're all bad, (laughs) Um, but, but, you know, it's a, it's a nuance within, within the bad, you know, it's, and and of course we could do the calculations, you know, call it a hundred meters and a hundred kilometers. Who cares? Right. <laughs> Who cares? Yeah. I don't care. 
so yeah, I, I generally say if when when the going gets rough, the biggest tire you can fit in the bike is is going to be the biggest benefit. The key really being um, the high efficiency tire, right? Because there are you know not all fifties are equivalent, and I think that that's one of the things that we mm-hmm. the industry is now going to have to kind of reconcile is that we've been on this wider is better trend, mm-hmm. but you can look at some of the data out there or, or do some testing on some of the tires and, you know, they're far from all being created equal. So where, uh, where does the efficiency come in the tire once it gets that wide? So really you're looking at the casing thickness, the tread thickness, and the construction materials. The casing losses in a tire are due to uh, this thing we call hysteresis, right? And hysteresis is essentially that that the materials behave differently one direction than they behave in the other. And, and the analogy I always use for this is the, uh, the Tempur-Pedic mattress commercial, mm-hmm. right? And so they take the hand and they push it into the mattress. And then when they lift it out, the handprint stays, right? Mm-hmm. That's a hysteresis. So if I push it down at one speed and then I lift my hand out and it stays compressed, you, all of that, that energy is being lost to heat. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's slowly rebounding back that that's a terribly inefficient, uh, construction for something like a tire. Mm-hmm. You know, what we ideally want in a tire is I push it down and it comes back exactly as it went down and there's no internal friction lost to, to, you know, change, convert that movement into heat. And so that's where, if you look at, you know, something like the highest efficiency track tires, you know, we, we go to work on a, like an hour record with somebody you know, and, and Vittoria will make them these, these ridiculous, I mean, you just want to touch them, uh, track tires where there's no latex in the sidewall. Hmm. And so you have this silk construction, two plies. And so it's two bias plies like, you know, like this, and there's no latex holding it together. You can actually kind of spread it apart and see the inner tube in there. Oh wow! And, and what that gives you is as the tire is compressed at the bottom near the contact patch, there's just that much less material to rub and make that friction, right, to give you those heat losses. Uh, you know, the other way, and I think we've got a video on our website to look at it, is different raw materials have their own hysteresis, right? And so if I, uh, I've got a video where I take a ball made of latex and a ball made of butyl and we drop them and the latex ball comes back you know, bounces like 85% of the drop height and the butyl ball bounces to like 20% of the drop height. And so what that's telling you is, is that, you know, that during that impact, when it's compressed and bouncing back, it's losing 80% of its energy, right? So that's just a terrible, highly lossy or high loss coefficient as the engineers would say. Um, And so you think of, you know, as your wheel is rolling, you think the tire right in front of the contact patch is, you know, its natural shape. And then as it comes under the contact patch and it compresses, right, it's being deformed to make the contact patch and then it's springing back. And the way that the loss is happening is all this energy is being put in to smush it. And then how much of that energy is it returning on the backside? Uh, the thicker the tire, uh, you know, the cheaper the materials, the, the more butyl, right? Uh, the thicker the casing. I mean, there's a million factors. Um, but if you were to draw those out as force vectors, you see that essentially there's kind of all these forces being put in to squish it. And then the forces that are coming out of it as it rebounds are much smaller. And so as we're making a, you know, a highly efficient tire, a supple tire, 
uh, we're basically trying to recapture that energy and let it, you know, spring back. Uh, and so that's, that's where you get to, you know, latex inner tubes are just way, way faster than butyl inner tubes. Uh, you know, if you build a tire with and use latex in the sidewall rather than a butyl, uh, it's much more efficient. Um, you know, as the treads get thinner, there's just less, less material there to squish, right? Same thing with knobs. The, the knobs squish around on hard pavement and you hear them, right? And I think that's another, another thing that we, you know, even at the pro level, we train our athletes. Like if you can hear it, right, it's a problem, right? <laughs> you know, nobody, nobody goes to the electronics store and buys a one watt stereo system, <laughs> right? Because power equals sound, right? The, the more wattage in your stereo, the louder you, you can play it. Well, you know, the same thing in the old days, you know, you'd put that three spoke wheel in that narrow fork and you roll it up to speed and it's going, <laughs> right. And people say, oh, that's the sound of fast. You're like, no, that's the sound of watts just shooting out into the air. You know, if you can hear it, it's not good. If you can hear your, your tire going right and making all these terrible noises, right. It, it takes energy to make that sound. The supple topic is exciting for me because it's one of the rare things in sport, in this sport, right? And in technology where it's sort of a win on every single level, right? It's, it's more comfortable. It's more efficient, right? It's better grip. It's less fatiguing on the body. I mean, there's, you know, when you really get it right, there's no negative to it. And I think of pretty much everything else we deal with in the sport. You know, I, I do tons of, you know, wind tunnel and kind of all these other optimizations. And typically there's always a trade-off, right? Like, and, uh, you know, I can put you in this position and make you a minute faster. It's really but, uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and typically there's a, you know, your power comes down, right? I mean, the most arrow position is usually not the most powerful, but because of the way the trade-offs work, you know, it's typically better to make you you know, 10% more arrow, if it costs you, you know, 10% Watts, right. you're usually faster with, that's usually a faster setup. And then the comfort, you know, I've always just said, I don't want to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> so in terms of the, uh, the, the steps to find ideal tire pressure, uh, get a notebook, get a notebook and a pencil, be cognizant of uh, what you're running, you know, write it down. And uh, it sounds like what we're going for is smooth. Start where you are. Seek smooth and and find. The key is finding that. I talk a lot about Icarus with my my riders, right? You know, pe people remember the Icarus story as don't fly too close to the sun, right? Mm -hmm. But when you really read the story, what Daedalus tells Icarus is, you know, don't fly too close to the sun or your wings will melt. But don't fly too close to the sea or your wings will, you know, load up with water right. and and, <laughs> and so, you know, these are the for me, one of the most exciting types of problems is optimization because, you know, the answer will be found by the person who, who spends the energy to understand it and learn it, right? Anybody can buy lighter stuff, right? Mm -hmm. You know, weight is a minimization problem. You just spend more to make it lighter, mm -hmm. um, you know, and so we have these three types of problems, maximize, minimize, optimize. Um, and the optimize is typically where you know, in this sport, at least there's so much science, so much data. Um, a lot of the maximize minimize that's kind of all done, <laughs> but the optim, but the optimize is still hanging out there. Cause it usually takes a notebook, 
<laughs> right? And a pencil. And as soon as I say a notebook and a pencil, people roll their eyes and go, oh, I don't want to do that. <laughs> but, uh, but, but the exciting thing is, you know, I, I can find you, I would say the average pro athlete we work with, we will find more watts through tire pressure optimization than you will get with like a full bike ceramic bearing upgrade. And it's essentially free other than your, your time. Right. And so I can, we can make you faster, more comfortable, right. Better grip. Your tires will last longer. That's another thing that people don't think about, but, uh, you know, the, the overpressure tires, the, the, the rubber starts to fail and crack. And so Mm -hmm. if your tires have little micro cracks in them, that's a huge sign that you're running too much pressure. Um, but yes, so get your notebook, (laughs) get your pencil. So do a lap. Uh, or do, 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 do a couple laps. So you're looking for yeah. smooth, um, you know, kind of reduce it, you know, in, in terms of that up. in like percentages. Yeah. And th- this is one, you know, not to plug our product overly, but, uh, you know, that I think in my story, my obsession with pumps really came from, uh, the Cancelara Roubaix project where we just couldn't repeat our data, right? We, we would find something that works and then we'd break the wheel or it would go slower. And we realized that, uh, the repeatability of the pumps. We had three pumps on the Saxo team truck, and there was a 12 psi difference in them at the same pressure. Uh. And we didn't know which one to trust. And so, starting about 09, I we started buying these, you know, $500 gauges and hot rodding these pumps to have repeatability. Uh, and so ever since then, I carry around this this little thing, carried around in a little Pelican nine millimeter handgun case, uh, and we call it the Truth. <laughs> and it's it's a 0.1% accuracy uh, gauge. If you look online, uh, there's a bunch of pictures of me with EF and Bora yeah. and a couple other teams at Roubaix this year using the truth. Um, but but it's it's a big thing because typically you'll find you know repeatability of of the pressure gauge you have access to is probably plus or minus three to five psi. Um, and so that that's the thing where you just need to be keeping good notes. And if you come up across a data point that you don't trust, let the air out, pump it back up, right? Try to repeat it in a way to find if you've got those, uh, those gauge errors in there. Cause that, that's the one thing about this that will drive you nuts. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, chasing your tail. If, if a right. hundred PSI isn't always a hundred PSI. The Bluetooth pump, is that pretty yeah. accurate or in terms of yeah so you know viaggio the bluetooth pump is pretty cool that all of our digital sensor technology um is actually pretty interesting so a digital sensor has a non-linear i can kind of draw this with my finger it kind of makes this like s curve mm-hmm. um instead of and so what the gauge manufacturers do is they they fit a straight line to this curve and you know if you look at the way you buy gauges you'll buy you know, zero to 30, zero to 60, zero to 100. Well, that's typically the same sensor and they are just changing where the curve is fit along the S. And so what we did is we went to our sensor company, uh, Wika in Germany and said, you know, okay, we want to custom fit this to put all of the accuracy kind of down in these lower pressures and then let it drift at the higher pressures. Because really, you know, at 200 PSI on a track tire, <laughs> you know, how important is, is one or two PSI. It, it's much less important than half a PSI is at 20. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the way we've got the curve fit on our digital technology, you are half PSI accurate, uh, up to about 75 or 80, and then it begins to drift. And so we're, 
were uh, the most accurate uh, pressure down at those low pressures. And then it, so it, at 100% or 100 PSI, it's 1% accurate. At 200 PSI, it's 2% accurate. Again, because at 200 PSI, 2% accuracy is right. plus or minus four. <laughs> So it's, a, you know, so it's accurate where it counts. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But yeah, if you're trying to hit, you know, 23.5, right. uh, we, we will hit that. We will be accurate within 0.5 and the repeatability is like 0.05, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's, you know, that's the other kind of thing that we forget about, right? There's accuracy, which is, you think of, was used the dartboard analogy. Accuracy is like, how close to the bullseye are you? Mm-hmm. Right. And then there's repeatability, which is how close is every dart to every other dart. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's called precision typically. And so people, I think, oftentimes confuse those. And so, you know, I know there's a number of products out that say high precision gauge. Well, it can be wrong as hell. Right. <laughs> it's just wrong as hell the same way every time. And that, that doesn't necessarily, you know, make it uh, make it all that much better. Although, you know, in, in this case, you know, use the same gauge every, your wrong gauge, your inaccurate gauge, uh, can still help you find a good tire pressure for you if it's repeatable. Right. If it's accurate, um, inaccurate the same way all the time. <laughs> right. And and then the problem is just, is just when you travel, right. Which is one of the, the problems again, we, we have with like the pro teams that, mm-hmm. you know, if you've got 10 pumps across five trucks in Europe and the gauges are all different from each other and a rider a rider's setup is, you know, X rear, Y front. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, every time they travel somewhere, they're getting something different. And then the results are, you know, <laughs> and so this is where, you know, it, you, you can see why people, I think, struggle to want to optimize in this, this area, right? right. It, it's quite simple to say, you know, Hey, for 500 bucks, I can give you this oversized pulley system, <laughs> uh, for your derailleur and you put it on and you never measure it and you have no idea if it's actually any faster. Right. And, and then you never think about it, but every time you look at your bike, it's like, oh man, this thing is fast because I've got that giant pulley system on there. Um, it, you know, that's easy, right? right. It, and what we're talking about is hard, but when you when you really look at the data, I mean, the results, optimal tire pressure can be five times the benefit of a giant oversized ceramic pulley system on your derailleur, oh, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, these can be big savings from a wattage perspective. And then for those of us who don't race, which is pretty much all of us, um, you know, you've got the the comfort and the the fatigue thing, mm-hmm. right? Which is, you know, for me at, at my age, yeah. <laughs> in the riding that I do, which is not much, um, that's a way bigger deal, right? Yeah. I'd, I'd way rather have, uh, you know, the the comfort and the fatigue reduction uh, than the speed. Although the upside is typically that the fastest uh, the fastest pressure is also the most comfortable. Right. So I want to thank Josh for joining us in this super deep bike tire nerd out. He's super knowledgeable, really articulate. And if you enjoyed them in this interview, you'll probably enjoy him in the other podcast he, that he helps co-host. It's called Marginal Gain. So it's a little bit more racing focused, but they do lots of deep dives into super fascinating topics. I think you will enjoy that as well. I will put a link to that in the description below. And as always, guys, keep the supple side down.